0: Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us here at camp meeting. Thank you for another opportunity to reflect on what is truth. And I pray that the presentation will be clear and understandable today. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Just again, a brief reminder for those of you who may be interested in further study on the book of Daniel, I have a book coming out in the next few weeks being published by Remnant Publications. You can see the cover there on the screen. And that will be coming out soon. Now, what we're going to be talking about today is the issues related to the book Questions on Doctrine and how that led to the rise of a notable theologian in the church, Desmond Ford, who passed away earlier this year. I want to start by reading from the book of Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. And we're going to read... Um, through verse 15. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. Here we read, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, stopping right there, we see that there are a variety of roles that God has set up in the church to lead to the unity of the faith. There are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. But what we see in verse 14, Paul goes on to say that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Now that's where we get the title for this seminar. By the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth and love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. You know, looking at what the Bible says here, it's the sign of childish Christianity to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And I've known of people who got into the 2520 thing, which I talked about a couple of days ago, and that of, that one of the ideas behind the 2520 is that God pours out his punishments on his people for their disobedience, so they got into that. And then when the moral influence theory came along that says God doesn't kill, that Jesus died on the cross to be a good example, but he didn't die for our sins. They went for that because they got into the idea that maybe God doesn't punish. So it's like, how can you accept the 25:20 and the moral influence theory at the same time? And that's childish Christianity being tossed about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And what we're going to see are there were some significant deceptions or false teachings that arose from the book Questions on Doctrine as well as through the teaching of Dr. Desmond Ford that continue to cause confusion in the Seventh-day Adventist Church today. So we're going to go through some things. We're going to start off with a history of Questions on Doctrine. This was published in 1957, and according to the authors of the book. It was by representative Seventh-day Adventists. This was by a group of four or five men. It was republished in 2003 by Andrews University Press as an annotated edition. In the annotated edition, George Knight says in the introduction that questions on doctrine easily qualifies as the most divisive book in Seventh-day Adventist history. A book published to help bring peace between Adventism and conservative Protestantism, Its release brought prolonged alienation and separation to the Adventist factions that grew up around it. Now, some background to the history here. The T.E.N., or he was president of the East Pennsylvania Conference, was listening on the radio to a series of presentations on righteousness by faith by Dr. Donald Barnhouse, who was editor of Eternity Magazine and was one of the leaders of the American Protestantism's conservative wing. So Dr. Barnhouse enjoyed what he was listening to on the radio. Here he is, a Seventh-day Adventist leader, listening to non-Adventist theologians. And he reached out to Dr. Barnhouse, commending him for his sermons on righteousness by faith. Now, Barnhouse, the non-Adventist, was astonished to be commended by an Adventist minister as he believed it to be a well-known fact that Adventists believed in righteousness by works. So, Elder Unruh, the president of East Pennsylvania Conference, this is before the two conferences merged in Pennsylvania, invited him to have lunch and also sent him a copy of the book Steps to Christ as a launching point for discussion. And this is where you have to kind of wonder what Elder Unruh is looking at because he thinks Steps to Christ is a great book, but he also thinks that what Barnhouse is presenting on righteousness by faith is excellent. Well... The correspondence between the two continued until Barnhouse wrote a scathing review of the book Steps to Christ in Eternity Magazine, calling the book false in all its part. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, Steps to Christ is one of the books that we will often give as a witnessing tool. It's one of the very first things we'll pass out to someone before we go to Desire of Ages or Great Controversy or something like that. And here you have Barnhouse, a Protestant evangelical, reads the book, and he calls the book false in all of its parts. He also called Ellen White the founder of a cult. At this point, henry to his credit, discontinued the correspondence, and it really should have remained that way. If Barnhouse thinks that Steps to Christ is false in all of its parts, then what further point is there in dialogue? However... Just a few years later, in 1954, Barnhouse appointed a young evangelical scholar named Walter Martin to write a book on Seventh day Adventists. The book would be entitled The Rise of the Cults. Now, it wouldn't be just about Seventh day Adventists, but the idea is that Seventh day Adventists would be in this book entitled The Rise of the Cults. Now, obviously, Seventh day Adventists, we as a people, don't want to be labeled as a cult, right? That's offensive to us. We don't think we should be called such. We believe that we are Bible-believing Christians. Well, the Protestants, at least back then, were very wary of Seventh-day Adventists and had a mind to label us as a cult. So Walter Martin, he had heard from Barnhouse about the correspondence with T.E. Enru, who was a Seventh-day Adventist leader. So he reached out to T.E. Enru asking to speak with authoritative Adventists and to be able to see Adventist literature so that he could treat Adventists fairly, and that's a reasonable request in a sense. Um, A lot of times what I have seen, and there's been some books written recently here um, by the seminary where they address a concept called last-generation theology where they build up a straw man of what they label last-generation theology And what they say last-generation theology teaches is not something that I'm aware of that people who believe in that even teach. So it's easy to build up a straw man and then tear down the straw man that looks ridiculous. So Walter Martin here was trying to treat Adventists fairly and to see what they taught. This led to a series of discussions in 1955 and 1956 Donald Barnhouse and Walter Martin represented the Pro- Protestant conservative evangelicals. And representing the Seventh-day Adventists included Leroy Froom, the leader of the General Conference Ministerial Association from 1941 to 1950, W.E. Reed, who was the field secretary of the General Conference, George Cannon, he was a teacher of theology at Nyack Missionary College in New York, and Roy Allen Anderson, the director of the General Conference Ministerial Association. Um, and then... Um, these were the representatives of Seventh-day Adventists. Now, missing from this group was Emil Andreasen, who was the foremost scholar on the atonement in the church, and that was one of the theological areas that was going to be zeroed in on in this book. So, in reality, he should have been part of the discussion. Now, Barnhouse and Martin had 48 questions on doctrine for the Seventh-day Adventist. That's where the book gets its name, Questions on Doctrine, because these were questions on doctrine that Barnhouse and Martin had for Seventh-day Adventists. And I want to make this very clear. Most of the book and its responses to these questions are standard Adventist theology. It's not as if 99% of the book is in error. In fact, a great majority of the book, probably 90% or more, is solid Seventh-day Adventist theology. So that's an important point to to bring forth because the book has obviously been a, a lightning rod of criticism ever since its publication, and there are some problems that we're going to look at. However, there were some hot spots that have not been resolved since that time. So let's look at where these areas were. So there were six main areas of potential trouble. One of the areas was what constitutes the remnant church. Well, this can be a bit thorny if you're talking to leaders of churches outside of your denomination when you claim to be the remnant church of Bible prophecy. So that could be a thorny area of discussion. Do you see how that could be a problem? So what constitutes the remnant church? That was one of their questions. Another question is what constitutes Babylon? Now that becomes even thornier because... These gentlemen are coming from churches that are part of the fallen Babylonian churches. That's another area of difficulty. And so if you say, well, you're part of a church that represents Babylon, then what's the likelihood that Seventh-day Adventists are going to be labeled as a cult in the book that's going to be published? So now we're having some challenges in this discussion. And then furthermore, so point number three, there was a concern from Barnhouse and Martin that Seventh-day Adventists taught or teach that the atonement was not completed at the cross. We're going to get into that. And then number four, they had a concern that Seventh-day Adventists teach that salvation is received by grace plus the works of the law. Point number five, and we addressed this in our very first presentation on Sunday, their concern was that Seventh-day Adventists believed that the Lord Jesus Christ is a created being not from all eternity, And then point number six, that Jesus partook of man's fallen sinful nature at the incarnation. So um, you've probably primarily heard about the issue of the atonement and the nature of Christ, and those were some hot spot issues, and we're going to talk about that, but those were not the only hot spot issues in the area of discussion. Now, there was no difficulty from the Adventist leaders in showing that Seventh-day Adventists believe from Scripture that Jesus is from all eternity. And you can show that as well from Ellen White. We went through this on Sunday. You can go back and listen to the recording. Ellen White has very clear statements. The Bible has very clear statements. Seventh-day Adventists are not semi-Aryan as some of the early pioneers were. So that was not an issue, and that issue was settled pretty easily. Um, Also, there was no trouble in showing that Seventh-day Adventists Do not believe that we are saved by works. So those issues were taken care of that we're saved by grace through faith and it's not by works. So that was not a problem. However, the trouble points especially centered on what constitutes the remnant church and what constitutes Babylon. And the trouble also revolved around the theology of the atonement and on the human nature of Christ. Now we talked about the divine nature of Christ and It's amazing to me that there's a a debate from the anti-Trinitarians about the divine nature of Christ. That's pretty basic. But this issue of the human nature of Christ has been in the Seventh-day Adventist Church since this book, Questions on Doctrine, was published in 1957. So we're going to get into the details, but this is just laying out um, a roadmap of where some of the issues developed. So for starters, how these questions were answered determined whether in our Barnhouse and Martin would include the Seventh-day Adventist church as a cult in their book. So that's a bit of a a challenging framework for a conversation. It's kind of like holding a gun to someone's head and saying, if you don't answer the questions right, I'm going to pull the trigger. So if you didn't have to be part of that conversation in the first place, why would you have that conversation? Like, why would I go to the table and sit... And have an optional discussion with someone who's holding a gun saying, I'm going to pull a trigger if you don't answer the right questions when I didn't have to walk into the room in the first place. So that was already a bit of a a difficulty because if you're going into the room saying, I don't want to be shot, I want them to say I'm okay and I won't get shot, then you're already in a compromising position where you're going to be prone to want to give answers that will lead to them not pulling the trigger, so to speak. Now, based on the Bible, Barnhouse and Martin were actually representing the fallen daughter churches of Babylon, where Rome is the mother church and the fallen Protestant churches are the daughter churches. So this leads to something that's very difficult to reconcile. Babylon wants us to, to wants to call us a cult, and we should be calling them Babylon. So how can you have a conversation that reconciles these theological differences when that's the framework for discussion. So sometimes that's not thought about very clearly by Adonis and the years that have followed since, and many have largely and widely accepted what's in the book, but this is the framework for how the book came about. So, however, Frum and company were determined to be accepted by the Protestant evangelicals. Another key impasse not really understood is that Barnhouse and Martin were coming from a Calvinist perspective of predestination, whereas Adonis were coming from an Arminian perspective of free will. So the Calvinist perspective makes it very clear that your destiny is determined already by a sovereign God, whereas the Arminian perspective teaches that God gives us the ability to choose. And that's part of the key issue in the great controversy— is the issue of choice. Do we serve God or do we follow our own inclinations? Do we follow the great deceiver? And Calvinism says that God's already determined who will be saved and who will be lost. And so this leads to some further presuppositions if you adopt a Calvinist perspective. So from a Calvinist perspective, having original sin meaning that you're condemned as a sinner by birth, That's a given. Christ must then have an unfallen nature because fallen humanity is condemned by the fact that they are born. And therefore the atonement must have been completed at the cross because there's nothing else that can be decided after salvation has been determined at the cross from a Calvinist perspective. The idea of man having a choice and that the sanctuary in heaven would be cleansed leading to a final atonement makes no sense at all if you believe in a Calvinist perspective. Furthermore, from a sanctuary standpoint, if you believe in original sin that you're born condemned at birth, then what do you do after the close of probation when we live in the sight of a holy God without a mediator between the close of probation and the second coming and you have a nature that's still condemned but there's no mediator. So that's some of the issues that weren't thought through clearly as this discussion took place, and that was the perspective that um, Barnhouse and Martin, these Protestant evangelicals, were coming from. Now, from a free will perspective, we say that sin is a choice, that um, God judges us for the sins that we commit by choice, not because we're born. Therefore, Christ can have a fallen nature... And the atonement is completed at the end of the investigative judgment when all have made their decision. That's the Adventist eschatological perspective, as it always had been up until 1957. So these were some of the issues that were taking place. Now, when it came to the remnant, this is the question, and this is found on page 186 of the original edition of Questions on Doctrine. It was question number 20. This is about the remnant. It is alleged that Seventh-day Adventists teach that they alone constitute the finally completed remnant church mentioned in the book of Revelation. Is this true, or do Seventh-day Adventists recognize by the remnant those in every denomination who remain faithful to the Scriptures and the faith once delivered to the saints? And the question continues. Do Adventists maintain that they are alone that they alone are the only true witnesses of the living God in our age and that their observance of the seventh-day Sabbath is one of the major marks that identify them as God's remnant church. Now, the simple answer to the question about the remnant is yes, we are the remnant church of Bible prophecy. Now, it's not fair to say that we're the only true witnesses of the living God because God has his people in all of the churches. But the answer that was given is an interesting answer. This is page 187, the answer to the question. Now, this is what the Seventh-day Adventists answer. We believe that the prophecy of Revelation 12, 17 points to the experience and work of the Seventh-day Adventist church, but we do not believe that we alone constitute the true children of God, that we are the only true Christians on earth today. We believe that God has a multitude of earnest, faithful, sincere followers in all Christian communions who are, in the words of the question, true witnesses of the living God. Now notice this. That wasn't so bad, but then five pages later it says, Seventh-day Adventists firmly believe that God has a precious remnant, a multitude of earnest, sincere believers in every church, not accepting the Roman Catholic communion, who are living up to all the light God has given them. Now let me ask you a question can you be part of the remnant church if you're not keeping the commandments of God and having the testimony of Jesus Christ? No. But they tried to give a political answer that makes it sound like 7th Adamists Adventists believe that the remnant church constitutes everyone who is living up to all the light that they have in all the churches. And that's simply not true. What is true is that God has his people in the fallen churches of Babylon, but that's why he gives the remnant church a message that says, come out of her my people. So that was a less than helpful answer on the question of the remnant, and you will notice that there are some in the church today who are embarrassed by the idea that Seventh-day Adventists would claim to be the remnant church of Bible prophecy. And my response is, well, then show me any other church who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is the spirit of prophecy. There is no other church in all the world that meets that qualification. Now, the question on Babylon, let's look at this. This is page 197 of Questions on Doctrine, and here's the question from Barnhouse and Martin. Do Seventh Adventists teach that the members of the various Protestant denominations, as well as the Catholic, Greek, and Russian Orthodox churches, are to be identified with Babylon, the symbol of apostasy? Now, what's the answer to that question? Yes, that's the answer. Well, here's the answer that's given. We fully, and so these are Seventh-day Adventists answering the question. We fully recognize the heartening fact that a host of true followers of Christ are scattered all through the various churches of Christendom, including the Roman Catholic Communion. These God clearly recognizes as his own. Such do not form a part of the Babylon portrayed in the apocalypse. Really? What is denominated Babylon in Scripture obviously embraces those who have broken with the spirit and essence of true Christianity and have followed the way of apostasy. Such are under the censure of heaven. And that answer is just simply wrong. Um, So if that was the correct answer, then why would we have the message of Revelation 18.4, which says, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her my people that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. And that's part of the loud cry message that cries mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. So why would we call them out if they are already part of the remnant and not part of Babylon? Then the, the answers to those questions given in the book defeat the purpose of the third angel's message. And maybe they didn't see that. I'm not sure what they were thinking, but they obviously didn't want to offend Barnhouse and Martin. So by answering these questions in this way, this would keep Seventh-day Adonis from being labeled as a cult. But the answers that they gave were wrong. Because we are the remnant church of Bible prophecy. We have a message to call God's people out of the fallen Babylonian churches. Now we come to page 341 of Questions on Doctrine. This is question... Number 29, and the question is, Seventh-day Adventists have frequently been charged with teaching that the atonement was not completed on the cross. Is this charge true? And the answer is yes. However, fruman company had a bit of a difficult time answering this question. They have a lengthy discussion in pages 341 to 445 of the book on the atonement. So Froome had some difficulty on this, but he answered that the atonement was accomplished on the cross and that the benefits are currently being applied. Now that sounds kind of right, but the problem with this answer is that it's wrong. And the reason why is this. The 2300-day prophecy points us to what day? The antitypical day of Atonement. Because we understand from the sanctuary message, and you've been learning some extra excellent things from David Shin's messages on the sanctuary this week and how he quotes Ellen White, where the sanctuary is the key that unlocks um, our understanding of Adventist theology, that the atonement was not finished when the lamb was sacrificed on the altar. The blood was taken from the lamb into the sanctuary, and ultimately on the day of atonement, The blood from the Lamb was used to blot out the sins of God's people, and that was what we call the final atonement. And most Christians, well, in fact, all Christians outside of the Adventist church, stay in the courtyard and think that everything was finished at the cross. Seventh-day Adventists understand through the 2300-day prophecy that we're living in the antitypical day of atonement, and that the atonement is not finished, until the blotting out of sins at the end of the Day of Atonement, and this occurs when Michael stands up and probation closes. That's Adventist theology. And um, again, Frum and company missed an opportunity to give a clear explanation on this because, again, they didn't want to be labeled as a cult. Now, we're going to move along to the question on the humanity of Christ, and this has led to a debate on the human nature of Christ from that time till this. Some of you, many of you, may have been involved in discussions on what kind of humanity Christ had when he came to this earth. So this is on page 50 of Questions on Doctrine. Question number six, what do you Adamus understand by Christ's use of the title Son of Man, and what do you consider to have been the basic purpose of the Incarnation? So here is where Froome had a bit of a problem. Frum company had a problem here. He had taken a poll of several Adventist leaders during the time of this discussion, and nearly all of them believed that Christ had a fallen sinful nature. This put Frum in a bind because to affirm this belief that Adventists had long held would increase the risk of being labeled as a cult. So Frum company advocated that Jesus took an unfallen, sinless nature that was an acceptable answer to Barnhouse and Martin. They taught that he took human nature vicariously as he took our sins vicariously. Now, that's a bit confusing because Scripture teaches, such as Second Corinthians 5.21, where it says, He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So if we say that Jesus took sin vicariously, then we're saying that we become righteous vicariously, but we don't really become righteous. And so to say that Jesus took human nature vicariously is to say that he really didn't take human nature. And to say that he took our sins vicariously, that's what the Catholic Church teaches, is to say that he didn't really take our sins But the reason why he died is because he bore our sins. So this led to some further confusion. Now, Frum and Company placed an emphasis on Ellen White's statements that suggest that Christ took a sinless nature. These statements are quoted in questions on Doctrine, page 59. They use Testimonies, volume 2, page 201, where it says, He is our example in all things. He is a brother in our infirmities, but not in possessing like passions, as the sinless one, his nature, recoiled from evil you know i had a discussion with an individual one time who said um, because we had a different view on the human nature of christ he says does your nature recoil in horror from evil now that seems to be kind of a bit of a gotcha question but it's really a bad question because the question shouldn't be does your nature recoil in horror from evil the question should be can your nature recoil in horror from evil And when the Bible says that we can be made new creatures in Christ Jesus, the answer is yes, our natures can recoil in horror from evil. Things that we once loved, we now hate, and things that we once hated, we now love because we've been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. So Christ, as the sinless one, his nature recoiled from evil. And then another quote that they use from Signs of the Times, June 9, 1898, says we should have no misgivings in regard to the perfect sinlessness of the human nature of Christ. And then when we come to Appendix B, page 650 of Questions on Doctrine, they have a heading under the Appendix on the Humanity of Christ, and the heading reads that Christ took sinless human nature. Now, notice what they say um, in, in the book about the human nature of Christ. Again, we remark Christ bore all this, human nature, vicariously, just as vicariously he bore the iniquities of us all. They go on then to say, it is in this sense that all should understand the writings of Ellen G. White when she refers occasionally to sinful, fallen, and deteriorated human nature. We read that Christ took our nature, he took upon himself human nature, he took the nature of man, he took our sinful nature, he took our fallen nature, He took man's nature in its fallen condition. So they make reference to that. But then he goes on to say, all these are forceful, cogent statements, but surely, now this is amazing to me. This is notice what he says. But surely no one would designedly attach a meaning to them which runs counter to what the same writer has given in other places in her work. So you're saying nobody should attach a meaning to the meaning of her statements and yet that's what you've done. That's the irony of the statement. This is exactly what Freeman Company did. They designedly attached a meaning to selected statements that fit the narrative they were pushing. So they tried to keep others from doing what they were doing. Let's look at some other statements about the human nature of Christ. Now that we've seen what they did, we're going to look at some other things. Um, We'll see what Ellen White herself says. Some quotes that were not given prominence in this book. This is Desire of Ages 48 and 49. It would have been an almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature even when Adam stood in his innocence in Eden. But Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the work of the great law of heredity. What these results were is shown in the history of his earthly ancestors. He came with such a heredity to share our sorrows and temptations and to give us the example of a sinless life. So Ellen White says in this statement, if Christ had taken man's nature before Adam fell, that would have been an almost infinite humiliation, but he didn't even do that. He took humanity... After the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin, and it says, He accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity as every child of Adam does. Now, one thing that's worth mentioning here a lot of times we'll go to obscure manuscript statements from Ellen White to try to prove a theological point. If you only had the book Desire of Ages, it should be pretty clear what her position was on the humanity of Christ. Now, Desire of Ages 117, for 4,000 years the race had been decreasing in physical strength and mental power and in moral worth, and Christ took upon him the infirmities of degenerate humanity. Only thus could he rescue man from the lowest depths of his degradation. Many claim that it was impossible for Christ to be overcome by temptation. Then he could not have been placed in Adam's position. He could not have gained the victory that Adam failed to gain. If we have in any sense a more trying conflict than had Christ then he would not be able to succor us or help us. But our Savior took humanity with all its liabilities. He took the nature of man with the possibility of yielding to temptation. We have nothing to bear which he has not endured. And then Desire of Ages 122, this is my last statement. In our own strength, it is impossible for us to deny the clamors of our fallen nature. Through this channel, Satan will bring temptation upon us. Christ knew that the enemy would come to every human being to take advantage of hereditary weakness and by his false insinuations to ensnare all whose trust is not in God. And by passing over the ground which man must travel, our Lord has prepared the way for us to overcome. Well, what's the ground that Christ passed over that we must travel? It's through having a fallen nature. It is not his will that we should be placed at a disadvantage in the conflict with Satan. He would not have us intimidated and discouraged by the assault of the serpent. Be of good cheer, he says, I have overcome the world. That's the complete picture of the Savior that we have. And that was largely taken away from us in the book, Questions on Doctrine, which created a new narrative on the atonement, the humanity of Christ, our perspective on the remnant, and on Babylon. Fruman company were less than transparent, In their attempt to answer these questions, George Knight even says so in his annotated edition of the book QOD, Froome also labeled Seventh-day Adventists who disagreed with these answers as the lunatic fringe of Adventism. So a majority of Adventists believed these things before the publication of the book Questions on Doctrine, and now after that book is published, they suddenly become the lunatic fringe of Adventism. Um, That's a, a problem. So there was a response. Emil Andreassen, who was the foremost scholar in the Atonement and the Seventh-day Adventist Church, he'd served as a conference president. He had served as president of Union College. He was a, a prominent thought leader in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He wrote a response in letters to the churches. As a result of these letters to the churches, he lost his credentials. And as a result, they were only restored posthumously. Um, he was having to go to Social Security to draw benefits because all of his credentials were taken away. Um, thankfully, his wife was taken care of after he died, and the church funds were, were reinstated to his family. But that was a very unfortunate outcome for standing up for truth. Truman Company had perhaps unwittingly attempted to meld two incompatible theological tectonic plates, and that is predestination versus free will. A new evangelical gospel theology emerged in Adventism, championed by Edward Hepenstall and others. The new evangelical gospel theology promoted original sin and an emphasis on forensic legal justification to cover the sin of our nature. It led to an acceptance by many that we will be sinners by nature until Jesus comes. That led to questions on the logic of an investigative judgment that closes before the second coming because if we're sinning until Jesus comes, how could there be a close of probation where there's no more sin to our record? Then Desmond Ford came along and he accepted the gospel as portrayed in questions on doctrine and his view of the gospel led him to question the investigative judgment. Now I'm going to share the testimony Um, If someone, many of you may have heard of, Kevin Paulson, he was a student at Pacific Union College when Desmond Ford gave his famous presentation, and I found that his testimony of the events is very compelling and describes very well what happened. So this is his testimony. I'm just going to read what he says. On the fall quarter events calendar, we soon noted a scheduled meeting of the Association of Adventist Forums with Desmond Ford as the featured speaker. Now, Desmond Ford was now teaching at Pacific Union College, and just for some context, he had been teaching in Avondale College in Australia. He had been kind of stirring the pot with his ideas, and the brethren had this idea that he was a big fish in a small pond, and if they moved a big fish to a big pond, he might diminish in influence, and what actually ended up happening is that his influence expanded. So his title was The Investigative Judgment, Theological Milestone or Historical Necessity. The words, the very words rang uneasy bells in the minds of the faithful. The meeting was scheduled for October 27, 1979. I was two years old at the time, so I definitely don't remember this, but I was alive when it happened. He goes on to say, I remember it well. It was a lovely autumn Sabbath. Words seemed to have gotten around that Ford was about to make a major statement. Devotees of theology gathered to the PUC campus from far and near. One reported to me much later that the evening before Ford had stated to her what I say tomorrow will be heard around the world. More than a few seemed to know this. That same evening I spoke on the telephone with Dr. Herbert Douglas, then serving as senior book editor at the Pacific Press. He was certain Ford would be extremely subtle in his assertions and would need in Douglas' words to be smoked out of his lair. He believed it utterly out of the question that Ford would join Robert Brinsmead in directly attacking the historic SDA Sanctuary Doctrine. I then told Douglas I would call him the following evening after Ford's presentation, but only if something dramatic occurred. He seemed quite sure I would not be calling him. He was in for a surprise. At 3.30 the following afternoon, two friends and I knelt for prayer in my dormitory room. Prior to leaving for the meeting site, somehow we two sensed something serious was about to happen. As we approached Pauline Hall, where the meeting was about to occur, we saw the doors open and a crowd start pouring out. Running ahead, I learned that due to overflow numbers, the meeting was being relocated to Irwin Hall, PUC's historic building, which then overlooked the lower expanse of classrooms, walkways, and the college church complex. My friends and I turned around and hurried up the long, stone staircase, anxious to find good seats. At one point, I asked with a hint of sarcasm, what are we running for so we can hear the investigative judgment thrown away? My negative premonitions were growing stronger. And you know, it's kind of sad if someone was there to present the truth of the sanctuary, maybe 20 people would have shown up. But with apostasy being presented, it was an overflow crowd. Ford began his discourse with his own testimony, describing doubts he had held for decades about the harmony of the Adonis Sanctuary Doctrine with the book of Hebrews. He went on to discount the validity of the year-day principle, denied any linguistic connection between Daniel 8, 14 and the depiction in Leviticus 16 of the ancient cleansing of the sanctuary, and declared that the book of Hebrews places Christ in the most holy place, not in 1844, but immediately at his ascension. The crowd loved every word, greeting Ford's message with enthusiastic applause. I mean, you think it's bad now. Well, this was 40-something years ago now, 42 years ago. And here you have, or 40 years ago, you have the crowd at a Seventh-day Adventist college applauding the word of a so-called Seventh-day Adventist saying 1844 doesn't matter, and the investigative judgment is is of no theological significance. At least one retired North American Division president was there, rising to his feet during the question period with a choked voice and a breaking heart. A group of us gathered in the back after the meeting, hardly believing what we had just heard. Upon returning to my dorm room, I called Herbert Douglas again, as I had promised to do, and the event Ford's message was newsworthy. I read him my notes over the telephone. By the time I finished, his sorrow was palpable. Tapes of the meeting belted the world in days. Soon the General Conference intervened, arranging with Pacific Union College, that Ford be given a six-month leave of absence, during which time he would prepare a defense of his views, which would then be examined by a committee of persons from varied backgrounds. Ford's manuscript, titled Daniel 8:14, The Day of Atonement and the Investigative Judgment, totaled 991 pages and was eventually published in book form. An abbreviated version of the manuscript was also published in Spectrum Magazine. A group of 114 scholars, pastors, and church administrators, soon to be called the Sanctuary Review Committee met to consider Ford's case at the Glacier View Ranch near Ward, Colorado, the week of August 10-15, to 1980. Less than a month later, following unsuccessful efforts by church leaders to urge Ford's reconsideration of his stand, the General Conference recommended to the Australasian Division, now South Pacific Division, that Ford's ministerial credentials be removed. This was done. The years that followed would see scores of pastors and a number of congregations exit the ministry as well as the denomination. And the controversy thus ignited continues to this day. It is an epoch the church dare not forget, and one whose unfinished business remains essential to the task of contemporary Adventism. You know We're still dealing with the fallout of Desmond Ford's theology to this day. And by the way, I should mention Dr. Herbert Douglas was mentioned in this story. He's written an excellent book entitled Fork in the Road about questions on doctrine. I've seen that book over here in the ABC. You should definitely get a copy. If you want to understand the issues, he articulates them very clearly in the book. So I encourage you to pick up a copy of that book here at the ABC. We're going to look at some key questions raised by Desmond Ford. Number one, he says that the focus of the judgment and the sanctuary cleansing in Daniel 7 and 8 is not the people of God, but their enemies. However, in Daniel 7, verses 26 and 27, it says, as a result of the judgment, that the, the saints of the Most High possess the kingdom. And in Daniel 12, verse 1, it says that when the judgment finishes, that God's people will have their names found written in the book. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, we read the the following passage, which is also very clear. Revelation 3.5 says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So clearly God's people are a focus of the judgment and of the cleansing of the sanctuary. That was a fallacious charge. You know, I, I'm friends with Lewis Walton. Some of you are probably familiar with him. I know he's spoken here at camp meeting in the past. And he said, you know, Dr. Ford's arguments um, contained a lot of bark, but not really any bite. Um, if we actually knew what we were looking at and studying, there's not as much to it as some would think. He says the year-day principle lacks clear biblical support. And he says Leviticus 4, 6 and Numbers 14, 34 have nothing to do with the year-day principle. However, when you look at Daniel chapter 8 and the vision of the 2300 days, the concept of the year-day principle is inherent within that vision. Let me explain. So you have two heavenly beings speaking to each other. And by the way, we have good reason to believe that this is Gabriel and Christ speaking to each other, because Daniel says in verse 13, then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Well, the certain saint which spake, there's a phrase that if you have a marginal reading it will say that the certain saint that Hebrew word for the certain saint is palmoni which means wonderful number or number of secrets so we believe gabriel asks the question and the question being how long shall be the vision and the answer is given by christ because the 2300 day prophecy is so important it ultimately points to the coming of the Messiah through the 70 weeks and ultimately of the rise of the second advent movement, which will lead to the second coming, that Christ didn't leave this to any other angels to answer. He answered the question himself. So when Desmond Ford attacks the 2300-day prophecy, he's not simply attacking a prophecy. He's actually attacking Christ, who's the wonderful number or number of secrets. And so the question is, how long shall be the vision? And the word for vision is hazon. And hazon means that which you have seen. Now, there's a different word for vision in Daniel 8, marae, which means that which you've heard, which refers to what is discussed in verses 13 and 14. Well, what has been seen in verses 3 through 12 is the ram of Medo-Persia, the he-goat of Greece, and the little horn of Rome. So the question is, how long will it take for the ram of Medo-Persia, the he-goat of Greece, and the little horn of which will trample God's sanctuary and people underfoot, how long is that going to take? And the answer is 2,300 days. There's no way that can be literal time. Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome cover thousands of years. That's also why Medo-Persia is the first kingdom in Daniel 8, and Babylon is missing. Because the 2,300-day prophecy starts in 457 B.C., which is right in the middle of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so, when you look at that vision, and that's why Daniel was astonished and he fainted when he saw this, because he realized that this was going to be for a long period of time, not for literal days. And that's why the little horn is not Antiochus Epiphanes. He goes on to say, Dr. Ford says, point number three, the word cleansed is not a correct translation of Daniel 8.14. The Hebrew word nesdak, which is the word here, that's translated as cleanse comes from the root word sadak. Nizdak means to justify, but Ford misses out here on Hebrew parallelism. There's many times in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, where justification and sanctification are seen as one unit, and it's a problem of this evangelical gospel that exists today that tries to separate the two, because sanctification is really a continuation of your initial justified experience. Job 4.17 says, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Teher, which is used as the word pure in Job 4.17, means to purify or to cleanse. And throughout the Old Testament, you see that the process of justifying is connected with purifying and cleansing. So when the translation, Daniel 8.14, says, Into 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be nesdak or justified, it basically means the same thing as being cleansed as well, because in the Hebrew mind, those two concepts run together. You can't be justified if you're not cleansed. Ellen White says in Faith and Works, page 100, God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. But the modern gospel says I can be justified in living in sin. It's not possible. And that's why the sanctuary has not yet been cleansed, because people think that they can be justified while sinning. And it comes from Desmond Ford and others like him. Ford goes on to say, point number four, Antiochus Epiphanes was the primary, if not exclusive, fulfillment of the Little Horn prophecy in Daniel 7 and 8. This is a very easy thing to debunk. He would hide behind the scholars and say, the scholars all agree. And he liked to always use that phrase. But yeah, these were the scholars from Babylon who agreed with him. Now, the Little Horn is obviously the papacy. And here is why. In Daniel 8, verse 4, the ram of Medo-Persia waxes great and in Daniel 8, verse 8, the he-goat of Greek waxes very great. And in Daniel 8, verse 9, the little horn of pagan of papal Rome waxes exceeding great. So you'd have to be a very poor scholar of the Bible to think that one king of one of the four horns of Greece waxed exceeding great compared to the entire empire of Medo-Persia or the entire empire of of Greece. Antiochus Epiphanes came from a division of one of the four generals of Greece, just so you understand that. He was not exceeding great. Rome is exceeding great. That's what makes the most sense. And of course, Desmond Ford tries to do that to try to minimize the historicist understanding that would lead you to 1844, because papal Rome goes till 1798 before the deadly wound. Then, point number five, he says the book of Hebrews teaches that Christ entered the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary at his ascension. Um, Hebrews 9, verse 3, Paul uses the phrase Hagia, hagion to describe the most holy place. The remainder of Hebrews 9 is Tehagia, which is translated holy places. Hebrews nine twenty four in the King James Version uses the best translation of Tehagia by saying holy places. And in fact, The ESV, or the English Standard Version, is the only Bible version of all the Bible versions that correctly translates Hebrews 9 with respect to Tehagiah or Hagia Hagian. It's holy holy places when it's Tehagia, which is the entire chapter, except for verse 3, which is most holy place. Now, Desmond Ford used the New International Version to make his case and said that Tehagia is always translated most holy place, but that's the wrong understanding, and you would think that someone as intelligent as him could have seen that, but he used the dynamic translation. That's not even a word-for-word translation. Point number six, he says, the Bible teaches neither a two-apartment heavenly sanctuary nor a two-phased ministry by Jesus in heaven. That's clearly not true. Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 5 shows the two apartments. Hebrews 8, verse 5 shows that the earthly sanctuary was a pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. And Revelation 11:19 19 shows the opening of the most holy place of the sanctuary in heaven at the sounding of the seventh trumpet on October 22, 1844. And if you, if you understand the historicity of the trumpets, you'll understand that the sixth trumpet ended on August 11, 1840, and then four years, two months, and 11 days later, the seventh trumpet begins to sound when Jesus enters into the most holy place and the most holy place opens in heaven. We see the Ark of the Testament because now God is going to begin the judgment where the law of God is contained in the Ark of the Testament from the mercy seat of the most holy place. And so that's pretty basic stuff, but Desmond Ford missed all of that. Point number seven, he says, the phrase within the veil in the book of Hebrews refers to the second veil or entrance to the most holy place. However, the truth is that there's two veils in the sanctuary. There's the veil into the holy place and the veil into the most holy place. So when Paul, the author of Hebrews, says that Christ has entered within the veil, he did enter within the veil in 31 AD when he ascended to heaven as he went into the holy place and then he entered within the veil into the most holy place in 1844. Point number eight, Desmond Ford said Seventh-day Adventists are wrong in teaching that sacrificial blood defiled the sanctuary either on earth or in heaven. But notice what Ellen White says in Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, page 266. As the sins of the people were anciently transferred in figure to the earthly sanctuary by the blood of the sin offering, so our sins are in fact transferred to the heavenly sanctuary by the blood of Christ. And as the typical cleansing of the earthly was accomplished by the removal of the sins by which it had been polluted, so the actual cleansing of the heavenly is accomplished by the removal or blotting out of the sins which are there recorded. So guess what? He doesn't like what Ellen White says about these things. So he says, the writings of Ellen White have no rightful authority in settling doctrinal controversy within the church and I'll say this since the days of Desmond Ford especially there has been a push among many to try to diminish the use of Ellen White from the pulpit on Sabbath morning in the Seventh-day Adventist church and you may hear people say well I can't bring my friends to church if you quote from Ellen White and my question then is well then how come you haven't studied with your friends before you brought them to church like, if, if you don't want them to hear Seventh-day Adventist preaching, then why would you bring them to a Seventh-day Adventist church? So study with them so that they're informed about what Seventh-day Adventists believe, and give them Steps to Christ and Desire of Ages and other books like that, and they'll see that Ellen White is certainly inspired by God. Desmond Ford claimed that her writings were inspiring, but not inspired. And he said it in such a nice way that it sounded so good. But her writings are an identifying mark of the remnant church. And as I said yesterday, if you don't believe in the writings of Ellen White, you're not a Seventh-day Adventist. The Sanctuary Doctrine, point number 10, he says, the Sanctuary Doctrine as historically taught by Seventh-day Adventists contradicts the New Testament gospel of grace. So there you have it. His version of the gospel goes against the idea of an investigative judgment where every man will be judged according to his works. Now notice what Ellen White says in Testimonies, Volume 5, page 575. The great plan of redemption, as revealed in the closing work of these last days, should receive close examination. The scenes connected with the sanctuary above should make such an impression upon the minds and hearts of all that they may be able to impress others. All, how many is that? All need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the Atonement, which is going on in the sanctuary above, When this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God and their efforts will be successful. Now the efforts of Desmond Ford in his New Testament gospel of grace led many away from the Seventh-day Adventist church and to the loss of their salvation. His gospel has not been effective to the saving of souls contrary to what they may think and believe. What we need is the complete gospel that includes justification and sanctification and an understanding of the sanctuary message, because when this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare people to stand in the great day of God, and their efforts will be successful. If you wonder why your efforts aren't successful, it's probably because you're not using this method. And she goes on to say, 5T, 575, By study, contemplation, and prayer, God's people will be elevated above common earthly thoughts and feelings and will be brought into harmony with Christ and his great work of cleansing the sanctuary above from the sins of the people. Their faith will go with him into the sanctuary, and the worshipers on earth will be carefully reviewing their lives and comparing their characters with the great standard of righteousness. So, Desmond Ford's gospel, We are sinners by nature, We will sin until Jesus comes because of our nature. Therefore, we can only be saved by a legal justification that covers us. He says justification is 100% God's work, but sanctification is 50% man's work and 50% God's work. Now, I don't know where he gets that from the Bible because 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 23 and 24 says that God will sanctify us wholly or completely, 100%. Now, that verse means a lot to me. That's the last verse my dad quoted before he passed away several years ago. And I believe in that verse with all of my heart that God will sanctify me 100% as well. That's his work too. Adventism today. Many are unwittingly under the influence of the gospel of questions on doctrine. And Desmond Ford, interestingly, there was an article written in the Adventist Review, the author had been a student of Dr. Ford, and the author admitted, and it didn't seem to be a concern to him, that most scholars in the Seventh-day Adventist church have accepted the gospel as taught by Desmond Ford. And that's a problem, because Desmond Ford's gospel is not in harmony with the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. The everlasting gospel of the first angel's message is what sets Seventh-day Adventists apart from the fallen churches of Babylon, Now is not the time to go back to a gospel that does not deliver us from sin, especially considering we're living in the judgment hour of earth's history. The evangelical questions on doctrine Desmond Ford gospel is destroying the power of Adventism. It has led to a compromise with the world and to an assimilation of worldly culture in the church. Because if I'm not lost... By the bad things I do because I'm simply covered by a forensic covering because I'm going to be sinning until Jesus comes, then the things that I do can't cause me to be lost as long as I have a covering. and so therefore it doesn't really matter what we do in the church anymore. and so we take a high standard from the scripture and the spirit of prophecy and we start dumbing it down and dumbing it down until eventually you go to some of our churches and it's like a nightclub with rock music and dancing which Ellen White said would be the scenes of our church just before the close of probation. That's what a false, false gospel does for us. So what we're going to do tomorrow is we are going to close with a presentation on what the true gospel of Jesus Christ is for the last days of earth's history. So I hope you'll come again tomorrow because we are going to look at the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the everlasting gospel, and we want to experience that power. Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, We realize that you have allowed heresies to come into the church because we've been sleeping. Lord, I pray that we would stop being blown about by every wind of doctrine, but that we would wake up to the time in which we are living. Lord, I pray that we would experience the power of the true gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would be forgiven for our sins and cleansed from our sins as well. May we be faithful and found ready when Jesus comes. I pray this in Jesus' name.